This is the Collector Car Podcast, the home for the auto enthusiast. Join Greg Stanley as he applies over 25 years of insights and analytical experience to the collector car market. He will interview the experts and throw in some fun stuff as well. Hey, it's Greg Stanley. If you're listening to this podcast, you know I love everything automotive. This passion has expanded to include being a car specialist consultant for RM Sotheby's. So if you need assistance buying or consigning a collector car at any one of our online or live auctions, including Scottsdale, Amelia Island, or Monterey, you can reach one of our car specialists at rmsotheby's.com or you can email me directly at gstanley at rmsotheby's.com. Metron Garage is a company designing unique garages, condos, and other structures specifically for the auto enthusiasts. They've got eight models to choose from, including two-story options, which I think is super cool, while with a very modern look and feel to them. And they come in all sizes, and they're fully customizable. You can check out them today and start specking your own ultimate garage at metrongarage.com, where you can request a catalog or talk to someone to learn more. So be sure to check it out. I just want to give a quick thanks to Euro Classics for sponsoring this episode. Euro Classics is all about collector cars, from servicing your new BMW M5 to prepping your Porsche for the racetrack to executing a total restoration on your favorite classic. They do it all from routine maintenance to performance upgrades to appraisals and everything in between. You can learn more about its owner, Dale Oaks, by listening to episode number 65 of this podcast. And you can find Euro Classics in the Kentucky, Ohio, Indiana service area and online at euroclassics.com. Classics, C-L-A-S-S-I-X dot com. Welcome to the Collector Car Podcast. I'm hoping all of you are going to have a wonderful New Year's Eve, and I hope you had a great time off this last week, enjoying time with friends and family. I know I sure did. So it's back at it, trying to provide you with some fun, entertaining content that you can listen to while you're on the road. Maybe you're driving home. Maybe you're driving to your next destination. So thank you for including me in your day. All right, this week, it's 100 Cars That Changed the World, 1930s to the 1940s. Now, I sourced this from a lot of different information, so this might be a little bit of a longer podcast. So please stay tuned and listen in, and hopefully you will learn a little something. So the first car on the list is the 1940s Willys Jeep. Now, this is from Jeep.com. In June 1940, with World War II on the horizon, the U.S. Army solicited bids from 135 automakers for a quarter-ton light reconnaissance vehicle tailored to Army specifications. Only three companies responded out of 135 automakers, Bantam, Willys, and Ford. But within a year's time, they collectively produced a template for the vehicle known worldwide as the Jeep. And if I remember correctly, people don't actually know where the name Jeep came from. Uh, I do know we have a 2014 Toyota FJ in the garage, and that was, if I remember correctly, the FJ was created in the 60s and 70s uh, because there was a request for the Jeep for the Korean War, and the U.S. asked Toyota if they could build it versus us building it, and that was the creation of the Toyota. I think it started off as the BJ, then became the FJ, and the FJ and BJ is actually the nomenclature, so the F is like for the type of engine, and then the J is actually for Jeep. All right. You didn't ask for that information, but that's a little bit of extra information. <laughs> All right, the next car is a 1946 MGTC. This is from Haggerty. The MGTC burbled into American consciousness in 1945 as American servicemen returned home from World War II's European theater. The car itself, however, was a further step along MG's evolutionary path, neither new nor revolutionary in its homeland. So why would it be on the top 100 cars that changed the world? Well, let me tell you. 
The TC was the third T-series variant followed the, following the TA in 1936 and the short-lived TB of 1939. The TC's body was four inches wider than its predecessors, and it was faster than the TA and TB as well, but the car had the same fold-down wheel, windshield, flowing fenders, 19-inch wire wheels, slab gas tank, and rear-mounted spare. The next car's 1947 Studebaker. Styling of the new Studebaker Champion was executed mainly at Raymond Lowe's Studios, with much of the work actually accomplished by Virgil Exner. The car's appearance was stunning and somewhat polarizing, and the Starlight Coupe's large four-part wraparound rear window in particular so closely resembled a front windshield that comedians wondered aloud if the car was coming or going. Nonetheless, the design was futuristic, and it proved to be influential as the rest of the American auto industry was forced to play catch-up. Now, that was from Haggerty.com. The next car is the 1948 Citroën 2CV. It is one of those noteworthy designs that changed the automotive landscape, improving the lives of people around the world in the process. Designed to champion the needs of would-be motorists, the 2CV was engineered to be a hero for rural France as it famously was able to transport a basket of eggs across a plowed field, also carrying four people. The compliant ride was a result of 2CV's ingenious suspension, along with a clever overall design that kept the car's cost low enough for the general public to embrace a motoring lifestyle. That is from Haggerty. All right, the next one's the 1948 Ford F-Series, which kicked off the long line of F-Series pickup trucks. In January 1948, a new era began at the Ford Motor Company with the release of an all-new line of trucks that Ford dubbed the F-Series. Now, this is from BlueOvalTrucks.com. The new series, which Ford promoted as its bonus-built line, covered a wide range of models with different cab and chassis combinations. The line started out with light-duty, half-ton rated pickup trucks and ran all the way up to the extra-heavy-duty, three-ton rated F8. These trucks used a completely redesigned cab with all-new front-end sheet metal, and in a departure from previous practice, the same cab served both conventional and cab-over-engine models. Now, this was the birth of the F-Series, so that's why that's a big deal. All right, the next one's the 1948 Hudson. The 1948 Hudson Commodore was a landmark car that came from an unlikely source. When the independent automaker introduced the all-new car in 1948, the change was more than skin-deep, though its exterior design was truly distinctive. The Commodore marked the debut of Hudson's new mono-built line of semi-unitized cars that used a deeply dropped floor pan and wraparound perimeter frame. This 1948 Hudson Commodore four-door sedan is from the first year of the famed step-down design from Hudson, which turned the automotive world on its collective ear. The Commodore is powered by the twin H-powered engine, a more powerful version of Hudson's large displacement Straight six first offered in 1948. Now that's from Hemmings.com. And that's where, like they said, it was stepped down. So your interior space was within the frame of the car. So you had a really cool exterior look while you still had all the spacious interior room. All right, the next one's the 1948 Jaguar XK120. This is from the Beverly Hills Car Club.com. First introduced at the October 1948 London Motor Show. The jaw-dropping 1948 Jaguar XK120 did more than just turn heads. It made the show attendees gasp for breath. This luxury sports car had everything, an incredibly strong chassis that took years to develop, an engine any Grand Prix racer would have been proud to drive, and some of the most appealing styling the world has ever seen. Notably, this was not the only 
first engine released by Jaguar. It was the world's first mass-produced engine with twin overhead camshafts and hemispherical combustion chambers. That sounds like a Hemi. An engine like this had only previously been seen in extremely expensive racing cars. This car was offered at a fraction of the price. Able to reach 120 miles per hour, hence the XK120. The Jaguar was the fastest production car of its day. Interestingly, with the intents of making just a few hundred cars, the first production run of the Jaguar XK120 offered aluminum-bodied models, but overwhelming demand not only convinced William Lyons to put the Roadster into further production, but also to switch the bodies to press steel. That's why the alloyed ones are worth a whole lot more than the steel ones. And in case you're wondering, that's where the XK140 comes from, as well as the XK150. Those were the top speeds of those Jaguars. Now, when you get way down the line to the 220, the 220 of the 1990s, it never could actually hit 220 miles an hour. It actually topped out at 217. It's unfortunate, but it is what it is. All right, the next one's the 1948 Land Rover. In 1947, while holidaying at his North Wales farm, Rover's chief designer, Maurice Wilkes came up with a plan to produce a light agricultural utility vehicle in the style of the Willys Jeep. He would have no idea that his design would become an icon and launch a whole new industry sector. Hugely successful globally, dozens of improvements were made throughout the long production run. And that was from ClassicDriver.com. The next car is the 1949 Cadillac. The 1948 Cadillac Series 61 and 62 were the first new designs from the company following World War II, and this was the birth of the fins. The wheelbase was shorter than the 1947 models, which were basically warmed over 1942s. But the big news was the appearance of Cadillac's fin, which housed the rear taillight and made the car look lower. Fins would characterize Cadillacs for the next 30 years and would be adopted as a styling cue across manufacturers through the end of the 1950s and beyond. So if you don't like fins on cars in the 50s and 60s, you have the 1948 Cadillac to blame. Now, what's the big deal about the 1949 Cadillac? Well, that is when they introduced the new 160-horsepower overhead valve 331-cubic-inch V8 as a replacement to the ponderous 346-cubic-inch side valve unit. And that information was from Haggerty. All right, the next car is our 1949 Ford. When Ford introduced this new model for 1949, the car represented Blue Oval's first clean sheet design since World War II. In fact, it was the first post-war sheet metal shown by any of the big three. Everything about the 1949 Ford was new except for the wheelbase and the powertrain. Now, that typically these are grouped together to 1949, 50, and 51 Ford. And just as a side note, my dad's first car was a 1950 Ford, and this was from Haggerty.com. All right, next is the 1950 Nash Rambler. Nash introduced the Rambler in 1950 as its lowest price model at $1,800, which wasn't cheap by any means. But buyers got a car that was loaded with standard equipment, including a radio, heater, courtesy lights, an electric clock, custom upholstery, wheel discs, and more. The Rambler was also the company's smallest model. In fact, its relative diminutive size with respect to the rest of the Nash lineup, and indeed the entire American car market, made it one of the first compact cars. Hence why it's on this list. That was from Haggerty. All right, next from MotorTrend.com is the 1951 Chrysler Hemi. Now this is more so a group of cars with the engine versus one car. Let's see, Chrysler's early Hemi grew out of experience gained during World War II with the developing Hemi head aircraft and tank engines for the war effort. 
After the war, Chrysler needed to remain competitive with the new Caddy and old overhead valve V8, so it began developing brand new motors. Early testing of alternative head and valve layouts revealed that the hemispherical combustion chamber was superior to other designs. The result was the 1951 debut of the 331 Chrysler Hemi. The Soto and Dodge Hemis followed in 1952 and 1953, respectively. Each division's Hemi had a unique block heads and cylinder bore spacing. Virtually no internal parts interchanged between them. In the Chrysler line, the 331 grew to 354 cubic inches in 1956, and finally using a rate to 392 for 57 and 58. You can still get a 392 cubic inch Hemi engine today. I know you can get it for the Jeep and probably the Challenger and the Charger. In the process, hardcore racers quickly discovered the engine's potential. The Hemi's efficient combustion chambers responded well to the new high-octane gas and was unsurpassed while running on alcohol. Now, the most famous Hemi is the 426 Hemi from the late 60s, early 70s. I have spoken to quite a few folks that have those cars, and if you go back to the interview with Bob Ashton, who runs the Muscle Car and Corvette National Show in Chicago from a few weeks ago, maintaining a Hemi car, the 426 car, is actually a lot of work. They're pretty finicky, and so even the folks that I know that have one, they don't have it. They don't list it as one of their favorite driving cars. They would rather have the 383 or the 440 big block non-Hemi cars, which I thought was pretty interesting. All right, the next one's a 1952 Bentley Type R Continental. In 1952, cars that could hit a top speed of 150 miles per hour were uncommon. Cars that could cruise at 100 miles with four occupants and luggage were unheard of until the R-Type Continental. Although only 208 were produced, the R-Type Continental created a template for Bentley Grand Touring that lasted decades. It even inspired the design team to work on the first Continental GT 50 years later, which is one of the prettiest cars out today. That is from BentleyMotors.com. And just as a little side note, they typically trade in the million-dollar price range. All right, the next car is the iconic 1953 Chevrolet Corvette. This is from Haggerty. The Chevrolet Corvette may have become America's sports car, but its roots are surprisingly European. As American GIs returned from World War II, they were influenced by the MGs and other European sports cars that dotted the region's country roads and wanted something similar once they returned home. Famed designer Harley Earl implored General Motors to build a sports car to capitalize on this interest, and it began to make, take form as the 1951 Project Opal. The results were first shown at the 1953 Monorama as the EX-122, a hand-built pre-production prototype. The finished product was the first Corvette, a two-seat roadster with a gaping chrome grille, upbeat-looking single headlights, and a curved windshield. All 1953 examples were white with a red interior. The fiberglass-reinforced plastic body was revolutionary for the time and set a precedent that GM would carry on with future Corvette bodies. Now, what's interesting about that first-gen Corvette, the 1953-54s, is they almost discontinued the car, uh, but then they saw the Ford Thunderbird coming out with a V8, which made Chevrolet put the V8 in the Corvette in 1955, and then the Corvette kind of took off from there. So they actually own the Ford Thunderbird. A big thank you for keeping the Corvette around. The other cool thing, if you ever see an original 1953 Corvette with original paint, one fascinating thing you can check out is check out the hood and kind of look at it in the light with the light reflecting off of it. Uh, originally, for the original paint cars, they put so little paint on the car that you can actually see the fiberglass weave coming through the paint. 
So, you know, if you're looking at a 1953 Corvette and you cannot see the fiberglass coming through the, the paint on the hood, it's probably not an original paint car. I'm full of useless facts. All right, the next one's the 1954 Mercedes-Benz 300SL. In most cases, a road car comes first and a racing version follows, but for the Mercedes-Benz 300SL, the radical gullwing door coupe that hit the market in 1954 was directly derived from the sports racing car that won the Carrera Panamericana in the 24 Hours of Le Mans in 1952. The road car that followed retained the racing version's strong tubular frame with high sails, necessitating the gullwing doors. It featured full, fully independent suspension in a fuel-injected version of Mercedes-Benz's single-overhead camshaft engine. The straight-six was rated at 215 horsepower, which was a ton of horsepower for the time, and would propel the car to speeds upward of 160 miles per hour, making it one of the fastest production cars in the world upon introduction. The only transmission available was a four-speed manual, and powerful drum brakes were fitted at each corner. Significant options included a more highly tuned engine, rudge knockoff wheels, and fitted luggage. The most coveted of all production 300 SLs are the 29 aluminum coupes, and that is from Haggerty.com. We actually have an aluminum coupe coming to the, I think, the Arizona sale in January. All right, next, the 1955 Chevrolet V8. Again, this is more about the engine than the, a specific car. The 1955 Chevy is a classic and marked a turning point for Chevrolet as they introduced the first successful small block V8 engine. With a displacement of only 265 cubic inches, it still was one of the most powerful engines ever produced, making up to 180 horsepower. Future variations of this engine with displacements of 283, 302, 350, and even 400 cubic inches have become legendary. That is from automuseum.org. All right, the next one's the 1957 Chrysler. Mostly this is the line of Chryslers that came out in 1957. During the 1950s, the Chrysler Corporation had manufactured many great-looking vehicles for the consumer market. The late Virgil Exner Jr. was the corporate director of styling in 1957, and he had designed many great-looking cars and trucks for that model year. For 1957, the Chrysler line of newly designed cars offered a forward-thinking design with a light, clean design that many consumers really had enjoyed. More importantly, the new Chrysler models gave the company a competitive edge over other popular selling vehicles at the time. The model years 1955 through 1957 brought impressive sales gains to Chrysler, which was attributed to the great new styling features. Now that's from MotorCities.org. One of my favorite cars is the 1957 Chrysler 300. Those things are gorgeous. All right, next is a 1958 Ford Thunderbird. This one kind of surprised me a little bit, mostly because I think of the 55 to 57s as being so iconic. But 58 was really the volume seller for Thunderbird, even though they're not as collectible today as the earlier ones. By 1957, the Ford Thunderbird was still well outpacing the Chevrolet Corvette in sales, and Ford executives, included Robert McNamara, wanted to push it even further. This was accomplished by leaning into the T-Bird's true nature as a luxurious cruiser rather than the pure European-style sports car the Corvette was initially trying to emulate. One of the mandates for the new 1958 Ford T-Bird was to make it a four-seater. The new Square Bird was built using unibody construction, making it the first Ford to employ this method, along with Lincoln's of that year. It also brought full-size luxury features to a mid-size layout. That's key in its success. This new design was almost a foot longer and 1,000 pounds heavier than its predecessor. 
Engine options were updated as well, featuring a new 325 cubic inch FE block V8 as the base engine in a 300 horsepower sent through either a three-speed manual or a cruise-o-matic automatic transmission. And that is from our friends at Haggerty. All right, next is the 1959 Austin Mini. Let's see. The Mini sedan can lay claim to being one of the most significant automobiles designs of the 20th century. The simple design broke all the rules, what with its transverse-mounted four-cylinder engine, front-wheel drive, transmission in the sump, a wheel at each corner. Well, every car had a wheel at each corner. I guess they weren't always at the corner. And suspension by simple rubber cones, costing only $1,340. The 1959 Mini also offered surprising interior space at only 10 feet long, and its 33-horsepower engine can manage 40 miles per hour when driven carefully. In one step, this car replaced every three-wheeled microcar as well as every motorcycle and sidecar with a real family sedan. It was a stroke of genius. Now, again, that is from Haggerty. All right, we just have one more. Our last car is the 1959 Lotus Elite. When Lotus unveiled the Type 14 Elite at Earl's Court in 1957, it signaled a change. No longer will Lotus be seen as just a race and kit car manufacturer, but now also one that produced cutting-edge road cars. Lotus founder Colin Chapman felt that for this production car, traditional aluminum or steel construction would be too costly, so he designed an ingenious fiberglass monocoque body structure that comprised three fiberglass pieces with steel frame members and suspension pickup points actually embedded in the fiberglass itself. This is the car that many considered to be the most elegant, attractive, and important Lotus in the Mark's history. Again, that's from our friends at Haggerty. All right, well, that's it. Those are the cars that changed the world that were built in the 1940s and 1950s. Now, in a few weeks, I will have the next installment, which will have the cars from the 1960s and the 1970s. If I remember my list, it's quite extensive and long, so that will be a longer episode. As always, thanks for listening. Thanks for putting up with my rattlings about car stuff, and I will talk to all of you in the new year. Thanks for listening to the Collector Car Podcast. Don't forget to give us a nice rating on iTunes and be sure to follow us on Instagram and everywhere else at the Collector Car Podcast.